This podcast was recorded before the coronavirus and before the 2021 Formula One regulations were delayed. So please excuse some mentions of the rule changes next year. Throughout the history of motorsports, the drivers have been on the front line of racing, but often their performance depends entirely on a group of engineers. In a special podcast series, we are going to speak to the likes of Adrian Newey, Patrick Head and Gordon Murray about what it takes to engineer the greatest drivers in the history of our sport. Not only will we look at some of the groundbreaking technology they brought to Formula One, but we will delve into the minds of the best drivers the sport has seen. We hope you enjoy the series, Engineering Formula One's Drivers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. I'm Ed Foster and this is another recording in the Engineering Formula One Drivers series. I'm joined by two Gordons, Gordon Cruikshank, editor-at-large of Motorsport Magazine, and Gordon Murray. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us again. You're a, a very pleasant welcome feature on this podcast. You've been doing a, quite a few of them. Thank you for sparing the time. Um, we're going to talk today, we've got some readers' questions. Uh, I want to talk about some of the drivers you work with and some of the amazing sort of engineering solutions you've, you've come up with. I was going to start um, with a comment you made, uh, I think it was in a Lunch With article um, in Motorsport. And you said you actually you always wanted to be a driver. Is that is that true? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, design wasn't even on the horizon because I was uh, probably six, five or six when I first saw motor racing out in South Africa, 1951. Yeah, I was six, and um, I, I immediately wanted to be a racing driver. Uh, I had no no thoughts, of course, between sort of six and twelve. Um, of how you get to get a car, uh, design a car or build a car, buy a car. Um, but it was always race driving. It was only when I got to uh, have a reality check at 18, 17, 18, when I realised I wanted to be a racing driver and needed a car. And my folks didn't have any money and I didn't have any money, so I had to do my own engine and my own car. And that, that got me interested into design. But having said that, I was, al- I was already into sort of from 13, 14 into engines in particular, drawing flat 12s and designing engines left, right and centre. I was an engine man to start with. And then I did um, mechanical engineering at college and thermodynamics, theory of machines, you know, camshaft design, all that sort of stuff. And th- but you, I think up until 1972, you were still keen on being a driver. Is it, oh, was oh, no, definitely. That never went away. You know, if, I, if I'd looked in the mirror when I was 18 or 19 and saw six foot four, and I was a lot lighter in those days, I probably would have, you know, it should have been a bit more realistic and stopped. But, uh, uh, yeah, when I got to England in winter of 69, I, my f- first focus again was what can I drive? But there was really nothing... Um, cheap and cheerful until I discovered Formula 750 and I designed and partially built a Formula 750 car, Type 4, T4, um, which was stillborn because Bernie bought Brabham and promoted me and I ran out of time. Subsequently bought the car back and we finished it and I drove it around the car park um, in November. Oh really? So, so I, I after that gap, after that, yeah, so that we found the actually the real chassis. Can you believe it? After all that time, where, where was the chassis? It was some chap um, down on the south coast who, had, his brother had inherited it or bought it from somebody. He was part of the 750 Motor Club still, and somebody saw it and said, "I think that's Gordon Murray's chassis," and we just got in touch and uh, we bought it back and we finished it. And I'm, I'm desperate now to race it or drive it or do something. <laughs> it's very radical, yeah. very, very radical. A serious racing idea in mind? Uh, well, I'll probably start with trying to talk Charles March into letting me drive it up the hill climb again. That's a good start. That's what I did with my first car, T1, in, in 2017. We finished doing my original IGM Ford. Uh, this car I did when I was 19. Yes. And we've rebuilt that and I, I raced that up the Hill, which is I remember it. Yeah, that was good fun. Yeah. But this one's tiny. This one's two hundred and eighty-eight kilos. T- two seventy-eight. I beg your pardon. And it's it's lay-down aerodynamics. The, the car's four hundred mil high, rear radiator, pull rod suspension, rising rate, 
And I designed that before everybody points to the Brabham as the, as the first car with rod-operated rising rate, which of course is universal now on cars and bikes. Um, but it wasn't. It was for this Formula 750 to get the springs inboard and out of the airstream and uh, get rising rate suspension. And I copied it, as I say it was stillborn, but I copied that system onto the Brabham BT44 and that became known as the first rod-operated rising rate suspension, but actually it wasn't, it was T4. Do you look at it now and think, ah, oh, I could improve that? You know what? Not a lot. Everybody's, the, the prototype shop guys here are, are very um, fussy, shall we say, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and critical. <laughs> and uh, that's a 1972 design, you know, and they, when they were building it and finished it, they just, they all went, wow, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not much bigger than a go-kart, this little thing. So I say 278 kilos. It's lighter than a rocket. Gordon, I feel a motorsport feature coming up. <laughs> it would certainly make a feature. Interesting yeah, it's car. A, it's a really With complicated a story, the way it stopped and started, and then how I read the rules. It's got a massive rule. I nearly said cheek, but I should never use that word. It's got a, a very... A skirt. It's got an interpretation a of, right. of the rule, let's say, um, in that they, they didn't want to start allowing people to have monocoques because that was expensive. And the basic Formula 750 rule was two Austin 7 rails, chassis rails, and after those became unavailable, they changed that for two two-inch square tubes by 16 gauge, and 16 gauge is shipbuilding stuff, you know, racing car standards. Um, one and a half millimeter wall. And you had to have that as a basis, and then you could build up framework and bodywork from that. So what I did is I got those two tubes drilled the hell out of two faces, just multiple holes, so it was only an angle left. Laid that in, up in the side of an 18 and 20 gauge, one millimeter wall aluminium box, which was the body, and riveted and bonded it together. So I had a monocoque with these two dead cheese <laughs> grill <laughs> rails just sitting in the corner. Just and dragging them along. So stiff and so light and so aerodynamic. It's a fantastic little thing. Brilliant. I just going back, to, going back to your driving, do you think that helped you when you were then working with oh drivers God, in Formula One and things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look back through Formula One, a lot of either team owners or team uh, technical principals drove, um, you know, the Chapmans of the world, that, those sort of people. And uh, it helps enormously because people forget now there's so much telemetry and so much stuff going on from, you know, 100 people back at base checking everything on the car during the race. In those days, we didn't even have radios, which is why I'm half deaf in one ear. You know, you didn't even have ear defenders in the early days, in the early 70s. And uh, you, yes, you literally knelt down next to the car and the driver told you what it was doing and you made adjustments accordingly. And being a race driver, it was a oh, massive head start because you could feel as long as the driver could communicate um, in, in good language, and easy language, um, what the car was doing, it was just so much easier being a racing driver. And that's one of the hidden elements of a valuable driver, of course, being able to communicate with you. Yeah. With the, with this, I've got a list of drivers here that you, that you, sort of, you worked with or you were certainly you know, in the team when they were. I mean, it's a very long list at Brabham, from Jack Brabham all the way through to Derek Warwick. Um, and then at McLaren, uh, Prost, Johansson, Senna, Berger. Were there any that stick out as being particularly good at bringing the car forward, as it were, or you know, engineering the car? Yes, oh, definitely. Um, uh, if we go chronologically, I think Nelson Piquet was one of the early drivers that really got on well with me from an engineering, a car engineering point of view. But that's because he grew into it. It, he, he wasn't, I mean, I met Nelson when he was racing Formula 3, and he was already technically minded. In fact, when Herbie Blash and I first bumped into him, Brands Hatch and Formula 3, he was changing his own ratios, I think, so he was, he was technically minded. <laughs> I can't imagine Lewis Hamilton or anyone, any modern no, drivers doing that. He was technically <laughs> minded already, but of course, probably didn't, in those days, didn't, obviously didn't have much knowledge about what made the car do what. But he was just so, you know, you have to remember he's with us for seven years. So he was just so into understanding 
why I did things. He used to drive me mad. He'd, he'd got a flat near us in Chessington, near the Brabham factory, and a bicycle. And he used to come in every day and literally sit next to the drawing board and go, what, why are you stress what's, what's the stress calculation on that? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you? And then when we, we used Southampton wind tunnels before I built my own wind tunnel in 81. So he used to go down to Southampton and he'd come down to the wind tunnel. And you know, why, why are you measuring that? Why are you putting that little bit of cardboard on there sort of thing? And, and so he, he, he was very, very hungry to learn what made the car do things. And I think rather than have a natural ability, which some drivers do, um, at uh, engineering the car and working with the designers and engineers, he grew into it. Um, but because, I mean, that's the other secret. If you have a driver in a team for any length of time, they understand the team, they understand the way the engineers think, uh, they understand the cars. Because in the, in the 70s, I mean, now I don't know what the cars are like to drive. If you jumped out of a Mercedes into a, a Renault, I, I suspect there's less downforce or less grip, but not much difference. Um, if you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, the designers designed different types of motor car, which handled differently and behave differently on different types of circuits, slow circuits, quick circuits, you know, Monaco to Spa sort of thing, or Monza. Um, and, and it was important to have a driver long enough for them to get into your philosophy of design and learn to drive the sort of car you were designing. And it was a big difference in those days. People forget now. Um, whereas now, I suspect the cars are all largely the same. They just go a bit quicker or a bit slower. Yeah. Do you know, obviously, as, as an engineer, would you have like? I know you left Formula One quite a long time ago, and really the, the freedom is gone. Um, but there's so many, there's so much data now. Mm. Would you have enjoyed that side of it? Because obviously, at the time, you just had that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the driver. But yeah. do you think, as an engineer, you would have liked I, the way it is now with sensors everywhere? I'm a bit old-fashioned. I like the personal connection and getting to know the driver and uh, their moods. And it wasn't just engineering; it was the character of the driver as well. And boy, there's a huge difference there. Um, still is, probably. Um, I would enjoy Formula One today more from the strategic engineering side rather than the pure data side, if you like. You know, I've always loved the, the overall, in a Formula One team, the overall strategy, and that is how you treat the people, how you work with the team, how you motivate the people, and how you try and keep ahead of the opposition in all ways, not just the engineering. That, that bit really excited me about Formula One. Yeah. And that was a challenge, if you like. Yeah. And I would still get excited about a role in that area, not so much sitting going through reams of data and trying to work out a direction. Mm. Do you think you would have gone into Formula One if you were born sort of 30, 40 years later? Because you know, when you were at Brabham, you did everything from the design to the engineering to going to the circuit to managing the drivers, whereas now there are probably 500 people doing what you yeah. did? Or at least. Yeah, and it's, it, it, I, I don't know, I might, might be putting words in your mouth, but it, it seems that you wouldn't have enjoyed being so specific. That's, that's a really difficult question because my, the reason I got into Formula One was just love of motor racing. You know, that was the pinnacle. Um, and, and that's really why I got into it in the first place. So I would still be driven if I was here later, but at, this, at the same young age, I would still be driven to get into motor racing. So that's half the question. Whether I would have had um, the same sort of satisfaction from my career, absolutely not. Yeah. Because I would have just been part of a team and, and pigeonholed. Your interest in racing was sparked, I think, when you, by your father taking yes. you to races. Yeah. But he also took you to powerboat racing, I read somewhere. Uh, Would you have been interested in designing boats or maybe not aircraft? Really, not really. I was cars and bikes, really. My dad used to race um, dirt bikes, and I was always motorbikes and cars. Mm. I, I, speed, generally. Yes. And if someone approached you to design an America's Cup winner, say? Uh, I don't think I could get... I actually went down to have a look at one and came up with a couple of suggestions to save weight. You can never find the off switch. But, but, but start doing a whole boat um, doesn't really float my boat. 
<laughs> I d just wanted to sort of talk a little bit more about some of the drivers you work with. And when you first arrived at Brabham, Jack Brabham was still very much in charge. What was what was he like to sort of to work for? Okay, well, I I didn't. I worked for Jack yeah. and Ron Toranek, but I hadn't started going. I didn't start going to races as an engineer until the end of '72. Right. So I didn't actually work with Jack on the circuit, but what came across immediately, apart from the fact the guy was a gentleman, a fantastic man, um, boy was he knowledgeable, you know. A lot of the design um, went in, that went into the Brabans was, was Jack and obviously Ron. Ron was probably a little bit more focused on the production cars. Ron was very good at making cars cost-effectively. Formula 2, Formula 3, Formula Atlantic. We used to make 60 cars a year in those days and sell them and, uh, and do an Indianapolis study and Formula 1 with 14 technical people. Um, so uh, Jack was just brilliant. I mean, there's a great combination of driver-engineer, you know. He engineered himself, if you like, in the car, you know. <laughs> um, and then, of course, when I took over and started going to circuits, end of 72, beginning of 73, going to circuits and actually engineering the cars. In those days, we had two race cars and a T car. And then when Bernie started selling drive, sometimes we had three race cars with a seat that got sold, if you like, and a T car. And I was engineering all four cars. So quite often, there'd be a queue you know, I'd be talking to one driver and there'd be somebody parked up and switched <laughs> the engine off waiting to talk to me. And I held on to that way too long, way too long. A lot of it, it you know, you can't always point the finger at Bernie and say it was budget because I was quite sort of autocratic in those days, quite sort of self-centred, if you like. And I wanted to do everything myself, you know, go to all the tests. And But I held on to that far too long when other other... Uh, teams had uh, an engineer on each car and a T-car engineer. When I went to McLaren, uh, you know, there were engineers on testing and engineers on both cars and a T-car guy. Yeah. But you've always liked a small team. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were very few people on the McLaren F1 mm. project. Tiny team, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll come to this in a, in a second, but your T50s, sort of everyone who's watching can see behind us. What's the team like on this? Well, it's probably the best team I've ever worked with from an engineering point of view. I mean, we've got, we've got a really good mixture of some ex-racers who drive the conceptual innovation and stuff with me. Um, and we've got a very good bunch of what I would call more production engineers, low volume production engineers, who have a, a wealth of experience on things like quality and assembly. You know, we've got, now we've got, a man, we've got a manufacturing department, we've got an analysis department. Um, it's a much bigger team than I had on the F1, about three times the size. Having said that, the cars these days are much more complex. The electronics on the, on the F1 were virtually non-existent nowadays. I mean, the electronics on the cars, you know, you need a department to look after that. Yeah. But it's, it's a great team of people, um, very innovative, um, and just keeping everything in-house again. You know, we, we don't put anything else at all. We do everything in-house. And we're very open plan here. We work together as a group. And so you're aware of every change that's going Absolutely, on? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, every size of nut and bolt. <laughs> yeah, as I say, we do a mass track. We do a mass track check every single week. And we're now down to literally bolts, literally nuts, bolts and washers. So, what, so what's that check for? That, that's where we are against the 980 target. Right, so that's in overall weight. Yeah. yeah. And where are you at this week? 987. So I've got to find seven kilos somewhere else. Right. In the nuts and bolts. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. D How soon are you going to start selling lightweight clothing for your drivers to wear? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I used to t t take my dr all my drivers, all of them, whether they liked it or not, had to take their watches off. And that wasn't just actual weight. I mean, you save the weight of one of these big old watches. Save the weight of that cost a lot of money, even in those days. But it wasn't just that. It was steering inertia. So, you know, you would go to the ends of the earth to make sure that the outside bit of the wheel is as light as possible so it has very little effect on direction change and inertia. And then somebody puts a heavy watch on their, on their wrist, which slows that arm down. 
So they all had to abandon their watches. Brilliant. I, the other drive that I wanted to talk a little bit, a little bit about was um, Graham Hill. He obviously was at Brabham yep. in, in the early days when, when you were there. Um, he'd, I'd, I'd, he sometimes gets sort of depressed that he wasn't actually a brilliantly gifted driver. He was more of a hard grafter. Is that fair? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Graham, when I mean, you're talking about engineering the cars, Graham was one of the drivers that fell into the camp that he thought he knew what affected car handling, but actually wasn't always right. And I, the very first time I worked with him was in, uh, they flew me out. Um, we had somebody else engineering the car. I think it might have been Keith Green or so, somebody anyway. And there was a bit of a panic because we weren't going to qualify. So I flew out overnight to Canada and Graham was driving for us. And that was my very first experience with Graham. And I very quickly learned, you know, he was not one of the drivers who would tell you what the car was doing. He wasn't working. I don't think he was used to working with somebody who used to be a race driver. So um, he would say, I want, you know, one click off the rear bar and I want 20 pounds stiffer on the front springs. And I'd go, no, <laughs> even though it was my first race, <laughs> I'd like to know what the car's doing. So we had a bit of a sort of a head-to-head, but we sorted it out by the end of the race meeting and we qualified for the race. But um, there are drivers, getting back to the engineering, there are drivers that fall into those camps, you know, um, of naturally gifted engineering-wise and getting the f- giving the feedback, um, learn, learn it, like Nelson, or haven't got a clue, really. And uh, I think Graham was a much better driver than people gave him credit for. Um, he started late in life, but, and sure, he worked at it hard, but you don't get to win Monaco by being a mediocre driver. Yeah. You, d- you don't. <laughs> Just the <laughs> concentration for two hours, you know, yeah. not to hit anything is, is tremendous. And are you prepared to say who were the drivers who didn't have a clue mechanically? I was just about to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> we had, um, for my sins, um, obviously to supplement the budget, Bernie had one hot shoe and one rented seat in those days. And we had a string of drivers. That's why the way the constructors' points are different now, of course. The way the constructors' points were in those days, um, we had no chance of ever winning the constructors' championship when you only had one car scoring. Um, and, and those guys really were, I think we had Richard Robarts, Ricky von Opel. They, they, they just couldn't tell you what the car was doing, really. I don't think they were near enough the limit. You know, you've got to go, racing, as you know, a racing car doesn't become a racing car until you actually cross the slip angle line. You know, anybody can drive a racing car when the slip angle is zero. You know. yeah. Once you go past um, into serious slip angles, and in those days we were running seven, eight, nine degrees slip angles, um, you know, the car had real attitude, and then you start feeling what the balance is and where the fine, the fine tuning stuff um, is, uh, where it, where it's at. You know, what you need to change to go through the quick corner, just a bit more balance, or so you can put the power on earlier after the apex and stuff like that. And that's the car over. If you've got somebody driving the car under the limit, they can't tell you anything. Yeah, that'll be pretty much where I would have been. <laughs> the, just looking back at this list of drivers. Are there any that stick out as the sort of most naturally gifted drivers, putting aside the engineering? Yeah, I think, um, I think Nicky. Um, actually, Nicky and Ayrton are the two, and probably Nelson as well. Mm. I, had a, I, I was lucky to work with a lot of drivers who were just naturally good <coughs> drivers. I mean, Carlos Reutemann and Carlos Pache. Pache could have been world champion. You know. Really? And Roy, Dero Carlos, um, or Lole, he, he, was, um, he was a great driver, but he had to be in the right frame of mind. And that's another foible, if you like, with drivers. It's a psychological bit. You know, psyching themselves up to being quick on the day, on the circuit, against that certain opposition. And when Carlos arrived at the circuit in the morning and he, and he thought he could win the race, there was virtually nothing to stop him. Yeah, particularly on the faster circuits. Um, and, one, and then another day he'd turn up and he'd go, well, today I think Jackie and Danny are going to be quicker than me, um, before we got in the car. <laughs> you know? And it was like, and you've got to try and get over that. So the, the complexity of working with drivers when you have no 
electronic data in front of you, just characters, um, moods, feedback, was, was a big challenge. And that's a bit I really loved. And that's probably a bit I'd miss. It's interesting, Frank Durney in, in this series commented on Carlos Reutemann and he, he had a passenger ride with him around brands in the wet. And he said it, it blew his mind because not once was, he, was the car ever straight or anything like that, but he was, he was just chatting and only had one hand on oh, the yeah. wheel. He did you, did you have passenger rides with, with drivers? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I took them as well. <laughs> what, a dri- what a Formula One driver's like in the passenger seat. Yeah, they weren't too happy. I took a, I took a, actually, I took the whole team around. We got to Dijon. Uh, no, I beg your pardon, Paul Ricard. And it was wet. And we were all in a transit van, about eight of us, including one of the drivers, I think. And we had a 44-gallon drum of fuel in the back, which made the thing really oversteer nicely. And uh, I did a couple of laps on the wet, and nobody in the team was very happy. (laughs) Sideways everywhere. Um, But gifted drivers, yeah. I mean, I've been really lucky. I mean, Nelson, absolutely. Reutemann and Pache. Pache could have definitely been world champion. Um, Both of those guys just had a natural gift. And then Nicky stands out. Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, of course. You know, I was lucky to work with a lot of people who I thought were just naturally good drivers. Yeah, yeah. Podcast listeners can save an exclusive 10% on a print of Gordon Murray's McLaren F1 GTR signed by the 1995 Le Mans drivers, Derek Bell and Andy Wallace. Go to the Motorsport shop at motorsportmagazine.com and use the code POD10 at the checkout. Um, I... T- I want to briefly touch on, there's a question here about um, the new Formula One rules. And uh, BL2 Driver, I'm, I'm guessing that's more of a sort of an internet name, um, is asking whether they're a step in the right direction and what could be improved. I'm, I'm wary of the fact that we've only got an hour for this podcast, because <laughs> I'm sure we could spend at least a day talking about these. Well, the quick in, answer, in summary. The quick answer <laughs> is actually, um, going back to um, something I did with you, in 2012 when motorsport asked me what would I do to make racing more competitive and to reduce cost and I came up with a set of rules which are still up on the internet and were printed in the magazine I think. yeah I've got, I've got the original drawing actually yeah and I did a little ball, yeah, yeah. ballpoint yeah. drawing and um, amazingly I've just analyzed just this week I've analyzed the um, 2021 regs and 75 percent of my suggestions are in there. 18 inch wheels, simpler front, smaller front wings, simpler rear wings, um, suspension that you're not allowed to produce lots of aero on, which takes out a massive amount of cost. Much more freedom on the centre of the car to get downforce for the designers so you can overtake easier. Um, and getting rid of all the little furry bits and barge boards and things that stick up all over the motor car, which is going to take a massive amount of cost down. Um, all those have been adopted. So um, I would say the answer is still, going back eight years, the things they didn't adopt that I suggested. I suggested also to go back to steel suspension to stop holding the race up every time somebody knocked a wheel off and left carbon shards all over the circuit and get the safety car out. And I think I also suggested dropping all sorts of, all the driver communication and and the onboard telemetry and stuff and just let the drivers get on with it. So they had to be more than just fast peddlers again. They had to be more of a complete driver as it's a driver's championship. Would you go as far as cutting radio communication? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that's, do you think that's feasible with the hybrids? Yeah. And the, and the kind of... Because uh, yeah, when yeah, you listen to some of them, I'm, I don't the understand The drivers now, I mean, they don't... They, you've still got to be quick. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's, it's yeah, it's a it's a different world with the hybrids, but I um, yeah, well, I, I think that's that's answered BL two drivers question. Um, I wanted to talk about the T fifty, which perfectly we are are sat in front of. Uh, just tell us a little bit little bit about this car, and actually, when I'll open it with wh- when are we going to see the car? When when will it start being? We built? are launching in uh, on the twenty second of May. Uh, that's when we're launching it, so not long. Not long. Not long. It's got uh, seven kilos to find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we've got a 22-month development program. We, do, we, we don't do small volume here. We do uh, just what the big OEMs do. So we do full um, durability, corrosion, hot weather, cold weather testing, 11 prototypes, and that's 22 months. So that brings us to production January 22. 
which right. is not not long. Yeah. And you're only making 100 cars? Exactly 100 road cars and 25 track versions. Oh. Is that with an eye on them all? Well, we're speaking to the authority, <laughs> shall we say. Right. Um, I'd love to race it. I mean, I'm very open about it. I'd love to race the car, but we have to have a formula that fits the car. One of the big problems we've got, the car's too light because most of the GT formulas are, have a minimum of 1,200 kilos, which, and our track version is only 890. So that means we'd have to put 300 kilos of steel on the car, which is just not practical. To be fair, you could probably just employ me as a driver and I'd be a, a third of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, I, I'm keeping an eye open yeah. on, on the, you know, and it depends on the customer wishes too. If the owners want to race, we'll have to do something. Yeah. That's what happened with the F1. Do you think this time you'll drive it to Le Mans, race it and drive I it back? I definitely would, yeah. It's going to be such a practical road car. It really is um, the son of F1 because it's, um, it has more luggage space, bigger cabin, uh, more comfort, uh, but of course quicker, lighter, more power, light, lighter weight. Hmm. Um, How long will it take you to build 100 cars? Uh, exactly 12 months. Wow. It's uh, 2.8 cars a week. So it's a very slow build. Impressive. So something I wanted to touch on was, unlike I think a lot of engineers, you also went to art school. Yep. And I think that's obviously had a big effect on you know, the way you've designed cars. And you've always been a real advocate for cars should be beautiful. They, mm -hmm. sh they shouldn't be function over yep. beauty. Um, I guess that's, that's really carried on throughout your career and culminating with the... Yeah, we've managed to do this. This is a really a return to beauty when you see the front of it. Okay, the back end gets a bit technical with a fan and the exhaust and all that, all, letting all the hot air out and huge diffusers. Uh, there's no room for paint on the back of the car. But um, ironically, that's what allows us to make the rest of the car very clean. And I've managed to keep it even more balanced and cleaner than the F1. There were a few areas on the F1 I wasn't quite happy with. They were a bit slab-sided, slabby, and I've managed to get a bit more sort of form and highlights into those areas on there. So it's, it's I think, even prettier than the F1. Very clean. Yeah. What's a, how, how many are on the design team of the T50? Um, all together, but including people like manufacturing and purchasing, and we've got about 35 people. Right. But I suppose you are, like the F1, you are overseeing every single... Yes, and I've got some very good senior managers on it as well. It's not just me. I'm doing the conceptual, make sure it's the car it has to be. But I've got really good chief designer. I've got some chief engineers, technical director. Mm. You know, we're all mucking in. Head of the studio. And specifically on what I have to call the styling, although all designers mm. hate the word, uh, you and a couple of others? Yeah, I mean, I'm leading the styling. I've always led the styling. The only car I didn't lead the styling on was the, uh, was the SLR. Yes. Um, which was taken out of our hands completely and done in Germany. Um, and we've got, um, I work very closely with my creative director, uh, Kev Richards, who has been with me for 25 years. And, um, and then we've got a tiny team in the, in the studio, really small team. Um, one guy on exterior and a couple on interior, basically, that's... That's it. And then you've got the surfaces who actually take that and turn it into a mechanical surface. Obviously, that's different. But actual styling, yeah, it's been a handful of people, which is why you get the pure car. It's the same with the F1. It was basically me and Peter. Um, that was it. Yeah. And we did the, the exterior and the interior yeah, and the aerodynamics. And that was just the two of us. And what, and what are the orders like for the T50? Well, we, when we first announced it, um, at the beginning of last year, I said to the guys, you know, if we can, if we can shift five or ten before we show the car, they, you know, that's a success. Um, two thirds of them are gone. Really? <laughs> and nobody's seen the car yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, we're now, we're only just now starting to have little sessions with customers over the, I call Zoom, I think, where you show them on their computer, you can show them. A, a graphic of what the car looks like, but nobody will see the car till the end of May, and uh, they're well on the way. And we're getting orders and interest every week. More on road cars or track cars? No, I'm only focusing on the road car at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Your your career since you've 
since you stepped away from Formula One has been very varied from the ice stream process to the city car to the, the sort of off-road truck that you designed, the T50, there's the TVR that I want to talk about briefly. What's, looking back at those last few years, what, what's been the sort of highlights? What have been the highlights for you? I think the design highlight was the off-road flat pack wooden truck, the Ox. It's the thing I'm most proud of out of everything I've designed. Um, but throughout your career? Yeah, more than the F1, everything. It's just, it's such a great bit of kit. And it, come hell or high water, I'm going to make sure that goes into production because it'll make a difference to so many people with mobility. Mm. It's just, the ability it has off-road is, is, you have to drive it. You know, it's two-wheel drive, but it's very, very light and has very unique suspension. Yeah. And the central driving position. And too. central driving position, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just, we tested against, uh, we benchmarked it for nine months against every known 4x4 and it just kills everything, you know, in its ride quality. Um, Toyota Land Crew, bring, bring whatever you like, Range Rovers, whatever you like, it just absolutely flattens everything. Um, that's the thing that's been a highlight, ha but it's so varied. Uh, the TVR was a good exercise, that was nice. Yesterday we launched, in London, we launched uh, a single person electric autonomous pod, which weighs 450 kilos. Um, so it's a quadricycle regulation, but it has the same safety as an M1 car, a full European type approval car, um, using iStream Superlight. And we launched that yesterday. Really? Just quickly on the autonomous side, what's holding up autonomous cars at the moment? Because you keep seeing the concepts and the, and the you know, the, the first versions of them and things like that. Liability. And is, there, is, it, is it the legal side, really? The technology is already here, you know. There will be accidents and mixed traffic until we hone it, you know. Um, but uh, the technology is already here, but the, but the, uh, the liability side is and minefield. Mm. Uh, yeah. As we've seen already with some Tesla accidents. Mm. And, that, and that's because, who do you blame, the person who wrote the code, to, or do you blame or the, the company, or, or, or the designer, the or the... Or, per, yeah. Yep. Right. Or, or the person the, on the board who or, isn't... Or, yeah, or the, or the people that made the camera that didn't recognise the, the light and shade, or the... Uh, pff, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's a real minefield. Yeah. Um, I think closed communities, uh, institutions, it's in the next 10 years we could have, you know, autonomous cars, but not mixed traffic. In a way, it's the beginning of a division. We've got more and more people who aren't interested in driving yeah. or in cars. Or They'll be happy to get into your motive single-person yeah. yeah. device. Yeah. But that means there'll be fewer people to buy this sort of car. Yes, well, this is, I mean, that's why I don't want to be a car company, a full-fledged car company and try and challenge, you know, Ferrari or McLaren or Lamborghini. This is, we are just, GMA is just going to do 100 cars a year ever, that's the maximum we'll ever do, and they'll always, whatever they are, and even if they're electric one day, they'll always be the best driver's car, the best engineered car, and the lightest car, those three things, in the world. Lightness being a bit of an obsession of yours, your personal classic car collection, almost all under 1,000 kilos. Yep, I think it's 30 under 800 or 900, I think. And this would fit into that? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I can't wait to try it. I mean, just to have a road car that, with an NA engine again that revs to twelve thousand. I mean, it's, it's purely focused on the driver. I remember you saying a while ago that you felt as if you had one last big project in you, but just talking there, you were talking about you're only ever going to produce a hundred cars a year, whatever. So this might not be the last. This will be the last hypercar, definitely. That's it. And, and I don't see anybody doing a new V12, NA V12 after this. Now I know how much it costs. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, nobody's done a new V12 for years and years and years. And I don't see us doing one uh, after this. But, but we can use versions of the engine. We can hybridise it, you know. Um, but we won't ever do, this is the halo car. This is the statement like the F1 was. Cars we do after this will be, you know, a different price point. You have got a proposal T43, which yes, is that's a Lotus Elise equivalent. That's a, um, ooh, it's a bit more grown up than a Lotus Elise, yeah. It's got airbags and air conditioning and sound well, system course, and yes. stuff, and, but it's lighter than an Elise. 
Yeah. More comparable to the Alpine A110, which yes. I think you drive. Yeah, exactly. I was, was going to ask whether that was yours outside. That is, yeah. yeah. It's exactly that, but just a little bit smaller and 200 kilos lighter. And I've seen a price point suggested for £40,000. It should, you could make the base one for under that. You could sell it for under that. Yeah. Yeah. It's With an existing thing. engine. Uh, uh, yeah, that would have to be an existing powertrain, yeah. We've designed it around the 1.5 Ford, 200 horsepower. So it's, you know, it's got a, with a one and a half litre engine, it's got a better power to weight ratio than a Cayman S. Now, all of that sounds yeah. as if you're well advanced on the process. Well, no, we're, we're not going to be a car company, but we're looking for somebody to pick that up. Ah. Yep. So we're building demonstrators and so people can pick that up. Well, we've got one, one company interested in an electric version at the moment, mm. <clears throat> but I'd love to sell the petrol version. Mm. I'm going to... In sorry, your... Well, one last thing about lightweight cars. In your collection, there's an Austin Healey Sprite. Mm. Is there ever going to be room for something as dead simple as that? Absolutely straightforward family mechanicals? I, th I think there's... In funny the enough, package, and this is going £20,000? There's something... I'm going against everything I've said. I think, in the past, <laughs> I think there's room for a, like a, a very simple, lightweight, electric sports car for people that still, without a big battery, because the car's so light, um, some, somewhere around the 1,000 kilo mark and somewhere with a 200 mile range for people that still, there'll be a generation, they'll peter out, they'd still want the wind and the hair. Sort of a Mazda MX-5, an electric Mazda MX-5, there's probably space for that. And if you keep it around 1,000 kilos, the vehicle dynamics are still okay, you know. But am I right in thinking that you're, that you don't think electric is the necessarily the future for road cars? The problem is nobody's really done the mathematics and the sums around the, the whole package. You know, if we all had electric cars tomorrow, I mean, first of all, the grid's not going to cope as it stands at the moment. <laughs> Secondly, the raw materials and where they come from, where they're mined, if you do a little bit of analysis on that, there's a huge problem. And then what do you do with the old batteries? You know, at the moment, we've got less than 1% of car sales are electric, so that's fine, because when the batteries are eight years old, they're saying if, if somebody's got a windmill or a water turbine, you can stick them in your cellar and you can store the energy for a bit and you can use it later with an inverter. Um, but if you had people dumping half a million batteries every year, well, what do you do with those? What, what we desperately need is either the next generation battery technology with a much higher energy density, or we need somebody to wait, find a way of making hydrogen um, without using too much oil. At the moment, you have to use more oil to make a gallon's worth of hydrogen than you do to make petrol, which doesn't make sense. But if we can make hydrogen um, energy effectively, then a fuel cell is 10 times better than an electric car. Yeah. But that's obviously some way off. Yeah, but the next generation of batteries are some way off as well. I think this massive push, I mean, I, I had great faith in this new government with their, you know, their promises through the election. And, and then we, the first thing they do is some ridiculous announcement about bringing forward five years where we're all going to be driving electric cars, you know, um, which is a promise they can never keep. <laughs> you know, they're never going to keep that promise, so they've already got a broken promise. Without any consultation, you know, we have, in this country, we have the world's best automotive council advising the government, which I've sat on now for 10 years. And there's people sitting on our council that come from other parts of Europe, and they've all said, this is an absolute fantastic model. You know, I wish every country had this model. And we've got a government now who's got the best automotive council in the world, and then they, they make a sweeping statement without talking to the industry, without talking to their own council. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, you know. Yeah. It's a shame, because up until that point, I was quite a believer. <laughs> yeah. From only three pounds for three months, you can get unlimited access to all of Motorsport Magazine's content, both online and in print. To sign up, just go to motorsportmagazine.com dot com forward slash trial t-r-i-a-l so I, one thing i really wanted to talk about was that we got a question here about the the tvr project um there's a question here from chris uh 
asking whether the delayed sort of start of the TVR um, it's basically kind of where the, where the blame lies for that. What's happened to the project? It's not really blame, it's just funding. You know. <laughs> Is that what's, what's Yeah, yeah, it? it's no, there's no blame involved at all. It's just um, we had a contract to get a running what we call a DP demonstration prototype, DP1, up and running for Goodwood in September 2017. And that's what we did. And we were under the impression that the funding was in place to go straight through and do the vehicle development program and stuff, but um, it hasn't started yet. Yeah. But we are in regular contact with TVR, and it's one project I really wish happens because the car's fantastic. I've driven it once with no vehicle dynamic development at all, and already, just after a lap, you can drive it on the throttle, you know, not the steering wheel. It's fantastic. And it's um, the performance envelope uh, it's 300 kilos lighter than an AMG GT and torsionally stiffer. And an AMG GT is, what, 140 grand or something, 130, 140 grand, all aluminium, and this, this TVR is 300 kilos lighter and the same size. Yeah. And that's ice cream. Isn't that going to give you the same pleasure on a country road in Britain mm. as this? because of the restrictions uh, of what you can do with this? It, it'll give you the same How direction much? of pleasure, definitely, but what it won't <coughs> give you is a normally aspirated B12 and 320 kilos off as well. And, the, and the manual gearbox. And the manual gearbox and the central driving position and, and, and. I mean, this is like the ultimate driver's machine, really. You mentioned the manual box there. Was that always a given? No, I was... I didn't think we could sell 100 cars with a manual gearbox. And when we were doing the, we started this almost two years ago, doing the concept and the marketing research and stuff, market research and stuff. And I was going to go for a halfway house with something like a manual sequential. So you had to still do something rather than pull an electric switch. Because um, the DCT boxes, and the one in the Alpine is great, but it's a complete non-event. I mean, it's an absolute non-event, it might as well. I, most of the time I leave it in automatic, it's such a non-event. Um, but then I got lobbied by a few people who knew we were doing the car and wanted to buy one, even in those days, and said, please do a manual box again, which was music to my ears. And out of all the cars we've sold, we've only had two people ask for, is there an option for a paddle shift? Yeah. And which side will the gear shift go on? What? As most people are right-handed, um, it has to go on the right-hand side, like old racing cars. The left-handers, I'm afraid, will have to suffer. The, uh, we're running out of time, but I wanted to sort of look back at sort of some of the engineering side. And the bits and pieces, whether it's Formula One, sports cars, road cars, that you've looked at, not necessarily thought, oh, I wish I came up with that, but have, you know, that kind of stand out as real step forwards, steps forward in engineering. Road cars as well. Road yeah, cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's been certain milestones. I mean, the um, and some of them are very unsung heroes. I think um, one of my favourites was when the first Renault Espace came out. I think it was '83, something like that. It was made by Matra, um, and it was a hot tub galvanised sort of space frame, stamped but space frame, with non non structural SMC plastic composite panels bolted onto it. And it was 4.2 meters long, weighed 1.3 tons, and had seven seats. And you could move them, take them out and adjust them. And it was just, I had three of them, <laughs> three in a row, you know. And I just thought that was just such a brilliant thing. And now, of course, the, the SPAS has turned into a stamped steel, two-ton monster thing. Like so, everything else. Yeah. The other one that's unsung for me was the first A-class Mercedes-Benz. Wow. Because for me, Car design is lightweight, obviously, but packaging. It's all about packaging, you know. I mean, this thing has got a footprint smaller, T50, it's got a footprint smaller than 911, three 95 percentile adults, a V12, more luggage space than the F1, aircon, everything you like, smaller than the 911. It's about boxer size. Really? Um, so it's all about packaging. And when the first A-Class came out, I had three of those as well. Um, it was just, it still is. My wife still drives one, and it's just mind-boggling how clever that package is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
The cabin space I measure is about 85% of a large SUV like a Range Rover and yet the car's under four meters long. It's just brilliant, you know, the feeling of space and the leg room you've got and stuff. Um, another one, which I also had three of, still got two, a Renault Kangoo, which I thought was just so clever. It, it's, it's the son of, or the grandson, I should say, of the Renault uh, 4L, which they made, they made eight million of them between 61 and 92, eight million. So the world's most successful off-road two-wheel drive motor car ever made, you know, bought by everybody. And, and they reinvented that with a Kangoo, just a simple, I think it was on a Clio platform or something, but just a simple high ride height, lots of wheel travel, absolutely utilitarian. Once you got back past the B pillar, just rubber mats and paint. And, and they sold them. I think they had to increase the production line. They had to double it because they just sold everywhere. And of course the marketing guys get a hold of it and go, Kangoo, we've got a new brand. So the next one that comes out is full of leather and outspeakers, bigger, heavier, and end of it. So those, those road cars, um, road cars don't normally excite me, but those three, I think, were standouts for me. And then the latest one would be the Alpine. Um, my two road cars at the moment are the Alpine A110 and a, and a new Suzuki Jimny. Yep. I need a four-wheel drive to get out of my cottage in winter with the frost and the snow and I hate big cars so when that thing came out you know it weighs a ton um, get and it'll go it'll drive around past uh, past all the heavy stuff because it won't slip sideways um, so those are my two current favorites that I think are different enough to be interesting it's interesting that someone who's designed the T50 the McLaren F1 Formula One cars the, the cars that you pointed out were not supercars. Okay, the Alpine is, is a, is a well, supercar. The Kangoo could hardly be further from a supercar, yeah. could it? A well, you're talking car. to somebody, don't forget that before the Alpine, a year ago, my everyday car for 16 years was a smart roadster. <laughs> that yeah. tells you something. Yeah. Because it was small, light, and fun to yeah. drive. Okay, the gear change and the steering weren't brilliant, but it was fun. And that was one of your rewards for the SLR project, I understand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> your choice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I was going to do some, some quick-fire questions in a second, but I just wanted to ask, um, something we've sort of asked some other engineers, um, what the toughest time in your career was, looking back at everything that you've done. I think it was losing a driver with Elio in Paul Ricard. I never lost it. The one thing I always... <laughs> try to do was make cars simple, easy to work on for the mechanics and safe. Light but safe. And that's probably where Chapman and I differed a little bit. We both driven by lightweight, but I used to stress, do stress calculations till the end of the earth to make sure things didn't break. And things didn't break on Bravens generally. Um, and I, I had a couple of drivers that were hurt. Um, uh, poor old John Watson had a throttle stick open at Brands Hatch and broke a leg. And Andrea Diadamich got mixed up in the Jodie Schechter Silverstone first lap with 14 cars or whatever it was and went straight into the Armco and broke a leg. But, I mean, those were things you couldn't control, really, and the car stood up pretty well, bearing in mind where the driver's feet were in those days. Um, but losing Elio was um, really something that really had a huge effect on me. And, and because, because his life was lost so needlessly, he wasn't injured, you know, he had a broken collarbone, but the fire extinguisher didn't work. It was poor Ricard testing, and the small extinguishers didn't last very long, and the fire truck came and the hose blew off the fire truck, and we had to basically try and turn the car over and stand there and watch it burn. And that had a huge effect on me. Um, and that was the beginning of, not, of wanting to get out of Formula One, really. Um, that was 86. That's when I really lost interest, combined with Bernie obviously moving on to the, man to the <coughs> running of it sort of thing, and not so much interest in the team. And we lost our driver, we lost our tyre contract, our engine contract. And then losing Elio on top of it was like the final straw for me, really. Now, before we go on to the next question, I should remind you that we have a motorsport shop that is absolutely packed to the rafters with signed memorabilia, posters, books, models, and everything you could ever want from the world of motoring or motorsport. Have a look at motorsportmagazine.com forward slash shop. 
What's more, as a podcast listener, you get a 10% discount on everything in the shop. This is valid until the end of July, and please use the code POD10. That's POD10. Um, I've got some, some names and some bits and pieces here that I was just going to fire at you to get your initial reaction. Um, Ron Dennis. Pass. <laughs> Jack Brabham. A wonderful man. Absolute wonderful man. Bernie Eccleston. Yeah, Bernie, I have a massive amount of respect for Bernie. I mean, we were business partners for 14 years. But beyond that, you know, the guy's passion for, he's still a racer at heart, you know. I, we have lunch occasionally. I lunch with him just you know, sometimes just before Christmas. And um, the passion he had for Brabham and then for the sports and what he's brought to the sport. I know people point to the bad things, but actually overall the guys, he's a racer and he's done a hell of a lot. I mean, people forget in 70, Formula One was on its knees before sponsorship and stuff, you know, really was on its knees. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, we still, we did a lot together. You know, we, got, we, we achieved a lot together as a team. I think he, he does a lot in the background that people don't hear about in yep. terms of charitable work mm. or yep. um, actually looking after family and no, drivers. A, and no, he's a thoroughly good guy. Yeah. Uh, the Brabham fan car. <laughs> yes. Well, we've, we have a return here with, t with Type 50. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was a hell of a lot of hard work, you know, to do that in three months. Um, but it, this, the real satisfaction is when you, when you take a massive risk like that and then you win the race. Like winning Le Mans or winning that or winning the first turbo championship against all odds against Renault. You know, I, I love, and Bernie did too, funnily enough. I love sort of being the giant killer, if you like. And, and the fan car was a real finger up to the community. Of course. Chapman tried to raise the objection that it was throwing gravel out the back, yeah. which we know wasn't true. No. Do you think people following the T50 are going to be worried? No, actually, this doesn't do the same thing. That, that, um, the, the 46B was a blunt instrument. It was a hoover, really. It just sucked up. It, it literally sucked itself. So anything that was lying on, it couldn't throw a stone, couldn't pick a stone up, let alone throw it. But it would pick up dust, for example, or grit or whatever. Um, and the fan efflux was only 55 miles an hour, so whatever came out the back was going much slower than the car. Um, but this thing controls the boundary layer, so it actually it sucks the air off at 90 degrees to the direction that anything wet or heavy is going, so nothing turns the corner, basically. And you can always have a filter on it if it did start damaging the fan or something. But it's a much more sophisticated device than the... That, that really was a crude device, the old fan car. Crude and effective. Lid over, the, over the back of it. Was there a wry smile when you thought about when you first sketched the well, fan? Well, on this? actually, um, the, the F1 had so many firsts, you know, ground effect, carbon fibre, central driving position, blah, 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 weight. Um, people glossed over or missed the fact that's got fa fan control boundary layer on it as well, the F1. It's got two small fans which live in the rear haunches, and it's got two tiny sections about five inches wide in the diffuser, reflex in the diffuser, and it sucks air off there. And, and when the fans come on, we increase downforce by 5% or something. Um, so I toyed with it, checked it in the wind tunnel, and it worked. So it's always been in the back of my head to do a fan car, because the, the, the F1 was a fan car, but only in a tiny area. Whereas this one, it dominates the aerodynamics, really. And what's the difference between the fan being on and off in terms of the aerodynamics? It depend what, depends what mode you're in. Uh, if you go to high downforce, it's 25-30% more downforce. Right. If you go to streamline, it's 10% less drag overall, because we make a long tail with the fan efflux. Um, if you're in braking mode, it's 100% more downforce. Um, At all speeds? Yep. Mm. You don't have to be doing 110. No. Yeah. What happens if the fan stops working? Um, we've made absolutely sure fan on and fan off because it does stop working. You can switch it off. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you can override it. You know. um, we've made sure that the centre of pressure stays in exactly the same place or within reason so we don't change the balance of the car. And once again, you won't feel 
a sudden lack of grip unless you're driving over the limit. And I don't know anybody these days that drives with modern sticky tyres, you know, drives a, a supercar around a roundabout with all four wheels sliding, you know. Uh, I know so people, some, some I know do people just that, before they crash. I know, <laughs> I know people that drive classic cars like that, <laughs> um, but, but not, not supercars. So it's dead safe from that point of view. Well, um, we are running out of time. Gordon, thank you so much for, for joining us. And Gordon, thank you so much for sparing all the time when you're in the middle of, of this project. I can't wait to Always see the car. Um, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what this it's, does. Yeah, the thing I love about it, and I keep telling the team, there's nobody else on the planet doing what we're doing. Everybody else mm. is doing turbos, electric, 1.5 tonnes, 2 tonnes. Mm. You know, so it's going to be a revelation, really. Yeah. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. But Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you, Alan, for recording this all. We'll see you again soon for another Motorsport podcast. Thank you.